to be here today. There are a few of you that I don't know. Um, and if that's the case, I'd love to meet you after the service today. Uh, we are in the book of Malachi. That is the last book in the Old Testament. So you want to open your Bibles. Uh, if you have an actual Bible, open it in the middle, go right. If you get to Matthew, you've gone one book too far. So then just back up a book and you'll get to Malachi. And we're going to start at the very end of chapter 2. This is one of those places where the sort of chapter and verse divisions don't make a lot of sense. But because they were added thousands of years later. But we're going to start Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 5. So let's go there and listen carefully as this is God's word. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who... Thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we so very much need it. We need to be reminded of Advent, what it means, what it prepares us for, why we're waiting. We need to look forward to the coming of the King. We need to not be so cynical that it eats away at our hope. We need to trust that your promises are true and that what you promise you will do. So enable us this day to set our hope on Christ. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. There is a show on the Discovery Channel called Gold Rush. I don't know if you've seen this show. It's now in its eighth season. Does anybody watch this show? Oh, there's a few hands going up very reluctantly, you know. Uh, surprising, I was unaware that anyone actually watched this show. Uh, but I guess I should have known since it's eight seasons in um, that lots of people watch it. I have seen one episode. Uh, I don't know why I stopped on that channel. 
Uh, I probably won't keep watching it, but I was drawn in uh, for a couple of reasons. And the first is that the men and women there are sort of the roughneck, blue-collar type people, right? They're, I mean, these are the folks that look dirty when they're clean, kind of like a five-year-old boy. Um, you know what I mean. And the other reason I like it, this may seem really random, is but when they find gold, it's not that impressive. You know, there's this special music, and then they bring it out, and it's a dirty rock. And everybody's freaking out. They're like, we've made it, we're rich. And it's just really hard to get excited about it because it just looks like a dirty rock. It, to be honest, I, I saw it and I'm kind of like, you know, I could probably dig that up in my backyard. Just go out there right now, dig down, pull something out of the ground. We've done it. What happens on the show Gold Rush is they see things that are there but need to be drawn out. There's things there that need to be cleaned up. They're going to need to be refined. So they see the beauty of what's there, but it's now hidden. Where I look at it and just see a dirty rock. They see the real value in the gold that's embedded underneath all of the dirt and the impurities. And the reason I bring that up is because at least 12 times in the Bible, God is referred to as a refining fire. Our God and our relationship to him is one of refinement. As we think about the coming of Christ, as we think about the initiating love of God towards us who are sinners, as we think about God reaching down to save us, and in his saving us, transforming us, changing us, pulling out of us a faith that's refined as gold. The Apostle Peter teaches us, 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So yet this trusted genuine faith, which the Bible says is more precious than gold, is often something we have a hard time seeing in ourselves. The Bible is clear that God sees us as incredibly valuable, which is why I often say, don't treat yourself so cheaply. God does not see you as cheap. The very blood of his son was shed for you. God puts on flesh and dwells among us. This Christmas season, Advent, is about God initiating not only your ransom and rescue, but purifying our lives, making us more like Christ for our joy, for his glory. God is ruthlessly about finding your joy and your hope in Christ. As I told you last week, we started this series. Somebody's not finding a lot of joy and hope out there. Um, We started with the Minor Prophets, Christmas with the Minor Prophets, and the minor prophets sort of chip away at us. 
and they chip away at hardened hearts. They reveal where we lack mercy. They scrutinize our faith. They give us hope because a hope has been promised by the God who speaks. So they confront us with these powerful themes of God's love, forgiveness, our need for faith and repentance, and God's demand that we listen to him, we listen to his word, we take it seriously, we believe it, and we exercise real hope that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so we're spending Advent looking and learning from a few of the minor prophets, and today we've come to the book of Malachi. And we see in Malachi, God is pleading with his people for more faith and more trust in him. He's forecasting the coming of Christ and explaining what will happen when he shows up. But the people of Israel are having a really hard time buying it, valuing it, listening to it, doing what he says. They're questioning the value of having faith at all. They've been so beaten down and disappointed by life, they've become cynical. That's a disease you don't see coming until well after everyone else has diagnosed it in you. Everyone else knows you're cynical before you do. Which forces up to us to stop and consider sort of what is cynicism? What's the who, what, where, when, why, and how of cynicism? Because cynicism is all around us. Cynicism promises a more sophisticated way of seeing things. It promises to protect you from getting conned or being disgraced or suffering disillusionment or losing hope. And truth be told, there's something deeply appealing about cynicism, especially in in the world we live in where we have to cut through so many shams and scams and phoniness and fake news and the endless, relentless spin of the capital. Cynicism, as we use the word today, has to do with seeing through and unmasking seemingly positive appearances in order to reveal those underlying motivations of, you know, greed, power, lust, and selfishness. It says behind every respectable public agenda lies a hidden private agenda that's less noble and less moral. To be cynical is to disparage or distrust the motives of others. Cynical insights, cynical perspectives, cynical critiques are so much a part of modern life that we've just gotten used to them. For those of you who are regularly on Facebook, you know that even the best of posts or links to good thought-provoking articles are going to be met with a barrage of cynical comments. And some of us have been the cynical commentators. If the Apostle Paul was the chief of sinners, many of us are competing for the title chief of cynics. You see, cynicism at its root is essentially a negative judgment. It stakes out no positive turf that needs to be defended. It can expose pride, boasting, selfishness, hypocrisy. In our current climate, gross immorality, both real and imagined, it can count on generating utter disgust in the hearts of its hearers. 
Cynicism is an easy way to be emotionally cruel without having to be physically violent. It's an easy way to be emotionally cruel without having to be physically violent. I find it interesting. The first person to be tagged with the title of cynic was the ancient Greek philosopher Diogenes. We don't know much about him. But we do know that the last part of his life was spent in a city that revered him and copied him and sort of modeled him, and that city was Corinth, which should certainly illuminate our understanding when we return to 1 Corinthians in January. But Diogenes was committed to driving out the counterfeit to make room for what was real. And he argued that wisdom was found in unmasking others. And he made it very clear that cynicism was not a school of thought, but the voice of doubt. Well, the voice of doubt was alive and well and running rampant at the time of Malachi. The people doubted everything. And the whole culture had become cynical. You ever felt like the people of Malachi's time? Maybe for you it's sort of a soft cynicism. Life isn't going all that well. It seems that work isn't progressing like you thought it would. Feels like the kids are always sick. Your parents are driving you nuts again. Let me disillusion the teens a little bit more here. That's not going to change when you get older. Okay, your parents will still drive you nuts, and they will find pleasure in doing so. And it doesn't end when you're 30 or 40 or 50, and I'll let you know in May if it ends at 60, but I doubt it. See, we all suffer from soft cynicism. And a lot of it just comes from the ups and downs of daily life and routine disappointments. You feel like it's the same dumb thing over and over and over again. Life gets your hopes up only to let you down again. Do you identify with that? I mean, we say we want things to be fair, but I don't think that's an accurate term. What we really want is for things to be just. We want, and we feel when things are unjust, we become cynical. And like the Israelites, we mumble and grumble and say, where is the God of justice? After all, we put our trust in heroes and athletes and coaches and politicians and pundits and celebrities and singers and parents and pastors, and one by one, they all let us down. They falter, they fail, they fall. They never quite measure up. But we dismiss it with a sigh. After all, they're only human. And even without realizing it, we make the subtle move from skepticism to cynicism. I mean, even this time of year. I mean, the the whole Christmas season, it holds out hope that life is going to be better. We get tons of sappy holiday specials, which offer great kids, wise parents, kind bosses, cheerful neighbors, and you look around and wonder, how did I get stuck with these people? I mean, there's lots of words of joy, love, hope, and cheer, and you think those are words that describe other people's lives. 
I have no idea how to get them to describe my life. And we build this up to such a fever pitch that by the time December 5th uh, is here, there's almost the inevitable letdown. And we can't wait for December 26th so that everyone will go home. And the promise of Christmas leaves us unfulfilled, melancholy, and resigned to a life of soft cynicism. And if that's for you, and I'm sure it is for some of you in some fashion or another, some degree or another, God gives you the prophet Malachi. Malachi spoke to a disillusioned, discouraged, doubting people whose experiences just don't fit with their understanding of all the glorious promises that all the other prophets had. This is the last guy. So he knows what all those other guys have said, and they all said, it's going to be great. But that vision of this coming messianic age hasn't happened yet. These people have experienced poverty, drought, economic adversity. They're disillusioned with God. They doubt their faith. And Malachi's prophetic word confronts a people skeptical of God's promises, indifferent uh, in their commitment to live in light of those promises, and they become cynical when it comes time to worship the Lord and serve him. Their love has grown cold. And so when it comes to talking about God, they have cynical hearts. Chapter, three verse, or, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Cynical hearts, it says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. It's one of the only places in the Bible that says that. Usually it says you've angered God, but here it says you've wearied him. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Apparently the people have a problem. They're looking for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises and they don't see that happening. We're now in the time period after the exile. They've come back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. They've been waiting for all these good things to happen. They've been given promises that God's going to do wondrous things when they come back from exile. The temple will be rebuilt. The wall around Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The new covenant will be implemented. The Davidic king will return. All their enemies will flee and all things will be set right. It will be glorious. There'll be justice and righteousness and redemption. Except there wasn't. None of that had happened yet. And there is a sense of deep disappointment. Now, if you remember from last week in the time of Amos, uh, the people were going through the motions because they were so well off. They just didn't care. But now in the time of Malachi... The people are still just going through the motions, but because they're so downtrodden, they think that God just doesn't care. So they still worship, they still go to the temple, and it's a lot smaller than Solomon's temple, doesn't look very good, and they still say their prayers, but their heart's not in it. It's just not the way they thought it was going to be. There's still a foreign power, they don't have their own king, you know, and they're saying all the right words, but they just don't believe it. They're saying uh, all the right things, probably from the Psalms, but they don't believe God's as good as these words say. And so God calls them on it. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Why? 
because their hearts had become cynical. There are serious issues going on in their hearts. First of all, it's the evil people who are prosperous. And so they thought, God must like those guys. We're hurting, but they're doing well. For some dumb reason, he likes them, and therefore, he doesn't like us. Now, that's clearly a cynical statement. Because if you know anything about God, you know that God is infinitely, eternally, unchangeably holy. And that God is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably good. And a God who's both holy and good could not delight in evil and evildoers. So why are they saying this cynical thing? Simply because they're looking around and all the promises of justice and righteousness and redemption aren't coming true and they see the opposite. The day is filled with social injustice, sexual immorality, rampant corruption, and the church, the temple, the priests weren't exempt from any of it. Any of that sound familiar? They're expecting the kingdom of God and they got a world that sounds a whole lot like yesterday's news. A world in which justice and righteousness seem to be far away. Therefore, God must not care. After all, if God cared, wouldn't he do something about it? And so they say, where is the God of justice? I mean, if there was justice in the world, the wicked would get what they deserve and the righteous would be rewarded, right? If there's justice in the world, faith would be lifted up. Evil would be cast down. If there was justice in the world, our heroes wouldn't disappoint us and our leaders wouldn't fail us and our families would fulfill us. And so they say, where is the God of justice? And the reality is we see it every time there's a tragedy. And our country's had a bunch of them. There's some mass shooting or some traumatic event. And everyone responds, me included, with something to the effect of our thoughts and prayers are with them. And then comes the cynical political backlash. They don't need thoughts and prayers. After all, God isn't fixing this. Or so said the headline on the back of the New York Daily News. And so they're saying, where is the God of justice? Now, that doesn't bother me as much as it probably should. Because way down deep inside, I think it reveals a built-in need, a built-in desire, a built-in longing for hope. Very few of these people are saying that God can't fix this or that God won't fix this. They're just saying that God isn't fixing this. And it's in line with this question, where is the God of justice? Because ultimately, they want the God of justice to show up. They want God as the true hero to enter the scene, to bring justice, to bring righteousness, and to set all things right. And so what does God say in response to this question? He says, wait, trust, believe. Because I will do all that I have promised. And there is a coming hero. Verse 1. A coming hero. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is coming, and he will set things right. But first, he's going to be preceded by a messenger. Verse 1, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Literally, it says, I send Malachi. Because in Hebrew, Malachi means my messenger. And so in the near term, Malachi himself fulfills this. He is the last prophet in the Old Testament. He's the last word until another Malachi shows up, another messenger, with the same mission and very much the same message, and he will prepare the way before me. You know him as John the Baptist. And if Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, even though he appears in the New Testament. Because he precedes Jesus. And Jesus makes that exact connection. Actually, it's three times. It appears in uh, Matthew and in Mark and in Luke chapter 7. He tells the people, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting Malachi and Isaiah. It says, he will prepare the way before me. The king is coming. The Lord whom you seek will come to his temple, his dwelling, his holy place, his place of rule. And this forerunner will be the messenger of the covenant. And who is he preparing the way for? The Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. And he'll bring justice and he'll bring righteousness and he will set all things right. And then there'll be no more cynicism and no more skepticism, and no more disappointment. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. 2 Corinthians 1, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And we long for all of that. We want that. We hope for that. But we want it to come without difficulty. We want the Lord to just show up and fix everything, but without having to bother us a whole lot. You know, we, we, we don't want him to be inconvenient. But that's not what this text says. Because the very next verse says, when he comes, he'll be like a refiner's fire, if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you know these words. But who can endure the day of his coming? You can hear the bass voice coming out. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so justice comes, but it comes in two ways, through refiner's fire and through fuller's soap. Fuller's soap is like an alkaline rinse that takes out the stains. We know what a refiner's fire is. So first, fire. When the Messiah comes, 
It's like a refiner's fire, taking the gold and silver and putting it into a smelting pot, turning the heat way up so that the gold and silver are separated from the dross, and all of the impurities are consumed, and the now purified gold and silver remains. There is an old hymn called How Firm a Foundation, and uh, it's one of my favorites, and it has a stanza that reads this way. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Malachi. Then fuller soap, something you're probably not familiar with. See, in those days, you couldn't buy soap like we know it. And this soap is more like laundry detergent. But nobody sold Tide back then. So they would take some lye and mix it with water and create this mild bleach-like soap. And you dip your clothes in the water and soak them really good. And the soap would separate the dirt from the clothes. And then you would take the clothes out and hang them up and beat them with a broom so that the dirt would fall off. You literally would beat them clean. There's a wonderful TED talk about how uh, the role of women has advanced dramatically with the invention of the washing machine. You can look it up. Just go to TED Talks and type in washing machine. It basically says women's education advanced in quantum leaps with the invention of the washing machine because they weren't outside beating the clothes with a broom. And now they had time to read. It's fascinating. Anyways, what do these images mean for us? Why are we warned about a refiner's fire and fuller's soap? Because when the coming hero arrives, when the king comes, he's going to make us clean. He's going to make us pure. but it might get a little hot and you may get knocked around a little bit. He's going to take our sin away and he's going to make us holy. And part of the point here is if you want a life of hope, if you want your family to be the way it should be, you want your marriage to be the way it should be, you want your church to be the way it should be, if you want your world to be the way it should be, then you need new people. You need people who've been cleansed from the inside out. You need people who've had their sins taken away and been purified. And what would be the result of having all new people? Well, when the hero comes, when the king comes, when the Lord descends, then we'll be able to truly worship. And we'll worship the right way and we'll say the prayers with great faith. And we'll say all the right words, but we'll really mean it. And we'll sing our praises with great joy. And we'll worship together as one body, as the temple where the Lord dwells. And we'll have great love, one for the other. And all of that will be an offering of righteousness, pleasing to the Lord. And our cynicism will be replaced with hope. But, there's always a but. The king not only deals with his new people with his cleansed people, with his purified people, but he also deals with those who are not his people. And against them, he will be a close witness. Verse 5, a close witness. 
close as in in your face. It says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The hero arrives, the king comes, and he judges. The God of justice shows up, and it is justice that he brings. And he brings that justice against the sorcerers who lead people in false worship, against the adulterers who practice immorality, against those who swear falsely, who advance themselves through fraud and deceit, against those who oppress others, who take advantage of the weak, the hired worker, the widows, the orphans, against those who push the sojourner aside, who fail to maintain social justice for the immigrant and for the powerless. But what's at the root of it all? The God of justice comes against those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. He comes to cleanse and purify, but if you aren't cleansed and you aren't purified, then he comes in judgment. You either belong to him or you don't. You trust him or you don't. You worship and serve him or you don't. He comes for you or he comes against you. And in response, you're either given hope or you utterly lose hope. Malachi spoke to the world some 2,400 years ago and he confronted the cynicism of his day and our day but he didn't do it by outdoing them with even greater cynicism. He did it by bringing hope to those who had lost hope. The writer Dick Kyes, in his brilliant, though it's not an easy book, called Seeing Through Cynicism, tells us that cynics are actually disappointed idealists. And that's because we're hardwired for hope. We're created with genuine hope and longing and desire for things to be the way they ought to be, the way they were meant to be, the way they were created to be. So in other words, when we say there's no justice in the world, when we say the world is not the way it ought to be, the problem, again, ultimately is inside. It's our hearts. Our cynical hearts need to be made clean. Our cynical hearts need to learn how to fear God, to reverence God, to love God, because he will change us, he will cleanse us, he will bring us the hope of the coming hero the hope of the coming king, the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the hope of Christmas. And we still have hope. I mean, especially at this time of year. I mean, don't we have hope for our families to be safe, for our kids to do well, for our parents to be wise, for our bosses to be kind, for our neighbors to be cheerful, for our world to make more sense today than it did yesterday? We hope that somehow things would be the way they ought to be. And why do we keep hoping that? We have this hope because something happened some 2,000 years ago. Something happened that fulfilled this prophecy of Malachi because the promised messenger came. And his father, a man named Zechariah, Broke into praise at the news of his birth. We read Luke 1. 
his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The messenger came. John the Baptist came. John announced the coming of the king. The hero is coming. The king is coming. The Lord is coming. John's message is very similar to Malachi's. The true hero is coming, and he will set things right. Luke 3, that is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And then he came. The Lord showed up. The messenger said he's coming, and then he came. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he exclaimed, John 1, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's our hope, that we will be cleansed, that we will be purified, that we will be saved. It's the hope of Christmas. It's hope for you and for me. It's hope for the cynical. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again, you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our cynicism and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess that we often live as people without hope. And though we claim the name of Christ, our hearts turn cynical when things don't turn out as we want them to. And yet you specialize in bringing hope to the cynical. You cleanse our hearts and purify our minds. You restore our hope. Thank you that the king is coming. Thank you that we have a hero who won't let us down. Thank you that he comes to take away our sin. Grant that we may believe it and live like it and hope in it. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.